Welcome to Unraveling Midlife. I'm your host, Sarah Spence. Thanks for joining me as I explore my own astrological midlife by speaking with all sorts of inspiring people about their life and work. Astrological midlife refers to Western astrology transits that happen for everyone in their late 30s and early 40s, though exact timing varies because of the fascinating dance of the planets. Each of the main midlife transits have an overall theme with details varying by generation and by individual. The time is often called the midlife crisis. I like to call it the midlife unravelling, a term I pinched from Brene Brown. If you're new to the show, welcome. Don't forget to check out the show notes for items that we reference. At the end of the episode, I often share a track of my original music. However, today's show has a very special feature with an out-of-the-ordinary original piece following directly on from the interview. I have to admit, although I'd heard this music online before, the live experience was something else, so I'm just hoping that the essence of that is captured here. Gary Cook is a sacred site archaeologist, author, documentary maker and storyteller extraordinaire. To try and sum up everything he does is quite a challenge, as you'll hear in this interview. His 12 years writing in New Zealand's Rainbow News publication in the late 90s and early 2000s is when I first came across him, but as you'll hear, it's not the only reason he's well known. Gary resides in the Bay of Plenty in New Zealand with his wife Raywin, who he references often, they are clearly quite the team, and who you may even hear in the background pointing out that we had been talking for quite some time, which was true. We discuss some of his books, Pilgrimages with Contemporary Barry Browsford, Patu Paidehe, and much more. And for a translation there, the Te Aka Māori Dictionary describes Patu Paidehe as fairy-like beings who were seldom seen. Other places our discussion meandered to include New Zealand's sacred sites, such as Castle Hill, known as the birthplace of the gods, which is two hours' drive from Christchurch in the Southern Alps and Te Meringa Te Kākara, a site of an ancient temple north of Lake Taupo in the North Island. Gary, welcome to Unravelling Midlife. Unravelling Midlife. <clears throat> Actually, I'm quite intrigued by the title. Um, <clears throat> I've been trying for years to unravel, so is this going to be of some assistance to me? Well, I guess the interesting thing is that I'm at this midlife astrology phase and you're at kind of like almost the opposite. Am I ever? <laughs> Without even saying how old I am. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I find it fascinating that the big astrological midlife transit I'm going through, you've actually finished up with and the other ones I've gone through, you're coming into because of the play of the planets. The planets are at different different points for for all of us at different ages right um at those times of life yeah yeah well there we are <clears throat> that's becoming a little clearer but I'm, I'm sure as we uh as we continue chatting today that there'll be a lot more clarity for me because this is an area that i'm not really conversant with okay my forte years and years ago was uh numerology oh really okay yes a long time ago in a, another life oh can you Tell us something about numerology. Is there anything? Numerology? About... Well, no, no, not a lot in a way. 
Um, How did it shape your life? Shaped our life at a particular time in our life, and I would, would have been around about 50, which was a transition year for me, as it turns out. And I had an interest in numerology, and I'd been away overseas, and I'd seen people doing numerology at uh, fairs and things like that, you know. And I thought, oh. Came back home, and we had uh, a friend who was a um, computer a computer buff, and um, <clears throat> I said, could you write me a program based on Chaldean numerology, which I've been studying? And so he did. He created this incredible program for me. And in those days, the first program was on an old Amstrad computer, which was a British computer, great big bulky thing. And um, so we put this together and I thought, wow. So I went and did a couple of fairs and things. So this is interesting. Then I thought, well, I'll take it to somewhere like um, Victoria Park Market in Auckland, a big weekend market in those days. This is back in the 80s. And um, I set it up. We ended up staying there for seven years every Saturday and Sunday, printing furiously little charts for people. And they were just just showing people what their strengths and weaknesses were, not making predictions or anything like that. But And it went from there to there. And um, quite interesting, I gave up my day job and just did that for two days a week. Wow. So if you can come to light with something which is innovative and you're a front runner or forerunner, you can do well as you know. And uh, it's interesting, and Raya and I, our life together, we have um, done a lot of things, her and I, where uh, we've been forerunners. And so we've got in, we've done something, we've manufactured something or made jewellery, which we used to do, and make candles, which were so unique, no one else had seen anything like it. So we're into all this creative stuff, and we just go from one thing to another. And then the numerology came along at the right time. I was... Um, had just taken up a job in Auckland uh, editing and managing a, a suburban newspaper on the North Shore. And um, I suddenly found after a couple of months, I just didn't want to get back into newspapers after being away for so many years. So I just left the job and just carried on doing numerology, which provided us with a good income, gave us a good base in which to build ourselves up financially. So it just shows you what you can do. Wow. Wow, I knew a couple of things about what you did, Gary, but numerology was something that uh, I I didn't know, but probably because I came across your work about, I don't know, 18 years later when I was a teenager reading Rainbow News. <laughs> oh, good old Rainbow News, of course, my gosh, yes. That was uh, a magazine which was so timely for our age, you know, your age and my age at that stage. And... Um, it was a vehicle which allowed us to connect with so many other people around New Zealand and uh, be informed of what was going on in healing circles and wellness circles and seeing the introduction of, of new products and new systems and, and ways of doing. It was just magic. Yeah. So it was, uh, it was, came at the right time, I think, for so many people. And it was helped a lot of people, I think, transition or just make a decision to go this way instead of that way. But of course, at that time, Rayra and I um, were given away the numerology that was um, that had gone, and um, <clears throat> we were involved in uh, show business in Auckland. We set up a business we ran for twenty-five years. We did uh, live live uh, production theatre for children, and we used to do three productions, three or four productions a year, and we did that for a long, long time. And we did it to raise uh, money for children's charities. And over that period of time, we put thousands and thousands of 
young children into live theatre seats. And that was our aim, to bring live performance theatre before children, which really, really achieved quite a lot. So <clears throat> we were sort of multifaceted and we would, we would step out of one thing into another. But of course, <clears throat> being involved in the, um, in, the, in the show business, if you like to put it that way, that gave us a good base to work on. We had a, a big business we set up in Auckland around this. And then, of course, um, you suddenly found, well, there's more to life than this. This is wonderful and we're doing it well. And then, of course, there was a, a book published in the um, mid-90s by a man called Barry Browsford. Mm-hmm. And it was called The Song of White Heart, The Stories of a Nation. And uh, I saw it reviewed in a Sunday newspaper and um, managed to get hold of the book, read it through very quickly. You can't read it through all that quickly. No, I have read it. Mm. <clears throat> and suddenly I thought, wow, this is what I've been waiting for. And so Raywan and I, uh, we met Barry and uh, Kushler and um, we became very, very close. He became my publisher for my first two books, actually. And um, away we went. And so we thought it would be incumbent on us to travel to various parts of New Zealand to try and bring out the present day status of the sites and names of places mentioned in Song of Waitaha. So with a nice little list that we'd made up with the help of Barry, we started to flit all over the North and South Island, finding these places obscure as anything. We've done helicopter trips up into the mountains and the Southern Alps and things like that. And um, then that uh, gave me information, of course, at that time to to write for Rainbow News because I shared much of our journeys in Rainbow News. So for listeners who don't haven't heard of Song of Waitaha, how do we kind of define that in a few sentences? <clears throat> it was a defining book in the fact that this beautifully crafted book, beautifully illustrated, written in such an incredible style, came about by a particular man by the name of Barry Browsford uh, as a scholar and and uh, a well-renowned uh, architect, no, sorry, archaeologist, what am I saying? Archaeologist who was also a professor of um, archaeology and history at, in uh, Christchurch. Now, he was invited by some old Māori men, Kaumātaba, to come and write their story for them. Them, them was the Waitaha. He knew of the Waitaha because their name had come up in his, in his work. And so they um, invited them away for <clears throat> the first weekend. And I think it was uh, seven or eight of these uh, elderly men. And they were the storytellers and the story keepers. And the song of Waitatha, six was it, Rowan? Thank you, Rowan. She corrected me nicely. Sometimes my memory plays tricks on me. And between these six, they retained 200 stories. And Barry had to sit with an individual over a long period of time while that individual sung and recited his story to Barry in ancient Waitaha Māori language through an interpreter and then Barry was not allowed to record it or write it down on the spot. He had to go outside and uh, then the interpreter and he would write it all out. And so they actually this way recorded 200 songs out of a 
a large amount of there were two they actually had two thousand songs available to them but song of waitaha was based on 200 only and so those 200 produced this amazing volume which talked all about these people where they came from how they came to new zealand when they came to new zealand where they settled how many iwi they had all throughout the country and it just goes into such great depth so well recommended to anybody to um, pick up a copy. It's still available through the New Zealand Library Services. Uh, you can buy, there was a, a, another copy put out a few years ago, so you can still buy new copies of it. But it is, if anyone has a deep interest in the history of New Zealand, and looking at, um, without being, uh, we've got to be quite sensitive here, but looking at who may have been here before Māori came. Mm, it is quite topical. It is, it is, but this has been something that Ray and I have uh, pursued for a long, long time. And um, <clears throat> therefore, we went around the country seeking out evidence of where these places were, where they mentioned. Evidence was not easy to find on the ground because um, the ancient people, the Waitaha people, didn't build from stone. They built from wood, which of course wood doesn't last mm. in this climate. And also they had no need to build big fortifications on tops of hills because over the thousand years they were here before Polynesian Maori arrived, they transitioned into 200 iwi or tribes right throughout the length and breadth of New Zealand. Out of curiosity, did they call them iwi then or did they call no, them hapu? No, they didn't even have that term. Right. No, it was something quite different. Mm. But the equivalent, um, <clears throat> they talk about 200 iwi, so that is just a little bit bigger. Doesn't mean to say it's a group which is um, any larger, but and so they um, they set themselves up and did very well. They were the people of peace. They uh, had disputations uh, amongst themselves with other people and um, uh, other tribes close by. Disputations uh, were settled mano a mano, and this was done by a show of individual strength with two people sort of biffing it out. They had no weapons. The Waitaha had no Taiaha. They had no Mere. The only weapons they had were actually tools. They were uh, bird-catching spears, fish-trapping, and, of course, digging tools for gardening. So they were truly the people of peace. And that's what first attracted Rowan and I. How's it possible, isn't it wonderful, that these people supposedly lived for 1,000 years in New Zealand in peace and harmony that was a biggie that's what drove us right from the start you know to sort of investigate it further i remember going to Haida Gwaii on the west coast of canada up near alaska <laughs> and uh and talking to um a lady from there and we sat there on the beach and she looked around she said my people have been here for thousands of years and i mean they they a lot 90 percent of them died because of um foreign Invasion, mostly scarlet fever, but um, yeah, mm. yeah, it was really some sometime. I will tell you a story about the Haida people that came to New Zealand. Oh, great! But there we are. They came to New Zealand. Yes, well, no, they they came for a visit, and um, I was uh, part of the small entourage that transported them around Auckland and um, oh, around to meet the Waitaha people and that. So, uh, and the connections there. Oh, I tell you what. When you get into this stuff, you talk about magic. It's spiritual and it's magic. Things happen which you just sort of become godsmack. 
How on earth is that possible? Where did that come from? Who said that? What's that standing over there? Who's that walking there? Suddenly you're opened to all sorts of potentials outside our, our normal everyday faculties. I'm just reflecting how grateful I am to be talking about magic after finishing my day job working on computer today. <laughs> well, there we are. Cripes, yeah. I mean, magic, earth magic, all sorts of different sorts of magic. When I say magic, <clears throat> it's just that things occur which are outside your, your normal sort of comfort zones or you've never experienced before or how is this possible. I could regale a number of stories about this to you and sometimes uh, sometime we may do that okay, uh, in, a, in another session or that because yeah. this will take a long time. Absolutely. Some things I've written about, other things I've only spoken about. Mm. So it's uh, there we are. Because Ray and I were fortunate. We were taken into the Waitaha people by Kaumatawa, who took us under his wing and told us lots of things and also put protections in place for us as we travel around New Zealand. Mm. Gave us an incredible karakia, which I say when I'm on a mud eye to introduce myself and why I'm there and why I'm traveling around the country and put protections in place for us as we traveled. Because in those days, there was, um, uh, this is going back in the 90s, yeah, late 90s, um, <clears throat> there was a lot of antagonism towards the Waitaha, who were these people that have suddenly emerged out of the mists of time. They were known by the few spread right throughout the country but so many did not know of them. So many Māori people did not know of them. And suddenly, oh, what's going on here? It's just another Pākehā thing put to, mm. you know, sort of uh, create um, schisms between us all. So we had that to contend with. Well, we went through the usual things. We had death threats. Mm. Uh, things like we had quite heavy-duty death threats. Don't publish your first book, otherwise you'll die. Well, um, that didn't come true. Hmm? That didn't come. To no, me. no, it certainly didn't. Yeah, and um, well, I don't think I died. <laughs> I nearly died a couple of times, but I don't think I died that time. No. Anyhow, but um, so you go through all that and the passions of people who are expressed and they get. But over the last twenty years, I suppose now I've seen such an incredible transition. Waitahara is now known and uh, acknowledged by so many younger Maori people who have taken the trouble <clears throat> to talk to their elders and find out if there's any truth in this. Do we have a whakapapa which goes back into these people who lived here or here or here? And then they discovered they did. There was an, you know, an, an adjunct there. So the Waitaha were all around the country? Yes. Or not just kind of Not the just the South Island, no, they were right. Oh. Mostly in the North Island. And quite, well, there quite a lot in the South Island too. Hmm. I mean, uh, the North Island, of course, had a what one would assume a better climate for uh, birds and uh, fish and, and arable land, but um, they prospered. I mean, there's one story which does appear in the uh, Song of Waitaha about the fact that the um, when they were living at Castle Hill there, um, they used to grow kumara at that altitude, which was unheard of. And it gives a description of how they did this how they're able to control the air streams around there. So they, they grew crops there. Oh. And of course, th that particular place of the ancient Malai there, 
was the transition point for all the Poanamu or Greenstone they carried across from the west coast over the ancient Greenstone Trail, which came up over the um, up the Arahura River on the uh, west coast side, over the um, <clears throat> Wilberforce and down into the Wilberforce River over uh, over the pass, carried the Greenstone all the way down the river and then came across land to the Marae there, and from there the Greenstone was distributed to all parts of New Zealand and even around the Pacific Islands. Yeah. Mm, so Castle Hill, if you were to tell someone a little bit about Castle Hill, it's a place, where is it, why is it special, where would you start? It's a hard one in a way. I have a lot of people ask me about Castle Hill, so I do have um, a few pages prepared which I'll email to them give them an overview and tell them where else they can look up things. There's a lot written about it now on Google, so it can be Googled up quite easily. A lot of people go to Castle Hill now and um, out of curiosity or on a pilgrimage because they've uh, come to understand that there's something special about here. So perhaps I should go and perhaps it'll help me to clarify my thoughts or clarify my position in the world and um, get on with life. But it's... um. It's a bit more than that because uh, you have visited there yourself. And it's not, it is in the stone and it's in the soil. The records are there. Everything that was ever sung there and spoken there is recorded like on a um, computer chip in the stones. The voices are still there. Okay. Because uh, that's all limestone country there. It's a limestone upthrust, quite different to your fingers around, else around, which was granite. And of course, you've got um, all the silica and things in there, which of course would store the memory. I have um, not been to Castle Hill to do this, but I've been to other sites in New Zealand where I've taken my recording equipment, which was developed to listen to plants. And I have discovered that by attaching the, uh, my contacts to things like stone on a sacred site or a special site, I can produce music. So the vibration comes yeah, out. Yeah, it comes out. Know. And like Poanamu, I've got a lot of heaps of Poanamu around the place. And I have some pieces here sometimes and I'll sit and play them. And they play with me and I hold them in my hand. So this is why I just so firmly believe there's so much recorded in the landscape. And it's not for everyone to go and sort of sit there and, and listen. I think if a person is of the right mind and a person has, say, some developed abilities or natural abilities to sit and quietly meditate and tune in, they'll get the messages. And I think we've all met people who've been to places like that and they'll virtually come out walking on air and saying, what a great experience I had, a very personal experience. But this can happen. It's the same with uh, healing. There are places around New Zealand. One in particular is a kind of a wall. I tried to find that once. I was had my rainbow news and I was trying to follow the road I'm and I got somewhere and then sorry. I started looking on the side and then and then I didn't find it and, and then someone said, you should have gone and asked at the crystal shop. They would have given you better instructions. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I, I give people a map nowadays. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So next time you go... Yeah, that was, that was well over 20 years ago. <laughs> well, perhaps we should go. 
I've got to do a trip back to the wall. I have to go um, because there's a big story about that, about the energies there and what have you. And the Kaimanawa Wall, for anyone who doesn't know, is... It's situated uh, about an hour's drive, hour and a quarter's drive out of Taupo, which is in the uh, central North Island of New Zealand. And Whereas you... Castle Hill's in the South Island, kind of... Yes, yeah, that's in the South, the so it's quite separate. the yeah. West Coast. <clears throat> and um, so you drive out of Taupo and you go on beautiful sealed roads and you go through forestry roads and you come to the natural forest. Beautiful, well-kept roads because uh, for hunters and trampers. And, um, and you drive in and it's very easy to find. And sometimes it can be an anticlimax for people. They expect to see a great big, huge square block structure as big as the pyramids in Giza, but much smaller, but stacked stones. And there's an energy there. It has, has become... I believe, a, a, a place of pilgrimage. And we do need places that we can go to in the landscape that we can journey to, to make that journey, to have that journey. I mean, we can go and sit in our garden with our favourite uh, plants. Uh, we can go to the beach and sit on the, in the sand hills and meditate. We can climb up the top of uh, Mount Monganui and meditate. But sometimes to make the journey to actually drive and go and have this adventure where you're going to be away for a couple of days. I mean, <clears throat> you can drive down to, you know, from where we live in the Bay of Plenty or even from Auckland, you can be down there before lunchtime quite easily. With those new roads, easily. <laughs> and, um, yeah, and then um, you can spend all afternoon out there, go and stay somewhere comfortable, if you like, in, um, in uh, Taupo, but there are camping areas up there. And um, I don't suggest going during the hunting season, though. No. During what they call the roar, because the, the car parks up there are full of intrepid hunters who are out to hunt a deer or two. So you don't want to get shot at. I think that was what struck me about my trip out of Taupo looking for the Kamanua Wall at that stage, was that I'm not sure if I found it or not. I saw something which might have been it, but I wasn't sure. But it was that it was a sense of pilgrimage, similar to when I went looking for the... um, uh, for Temeringa Te Kākara, the ancient Lemurian temple yes, site, which well. is what a couple of hours from there. Um, but also, you know, fast forward that twenty odd years. <clears throat> last summer, when I went to Castle Hill, I knew that I, of Castle Hill for so long, but I didn't want to force myself for a Castle Hill trip until it was the right time. And I, I, my whole day that day was like a pilgrimage. And I turned off at the time that flashed on the clock in my site right uh, and and then later that day I went to the, um the clay cliffs down at um uh Omarama, mm. and mm. it felt like a pilgrimage day of visiting which is wonderful because that's it it's a pilgrimage day mm. there's so many places that we can go to and even i often say to people you know if you've if you've got time to um just go for a sunday afternoon drive get out of your town or your city and take the road out of town, but then take one of the byways. Uh, take one of the lesser roads, which goes up through the farmland. And so often you can be driving around these roads, winding around hills or sheep stations, and you'll come across rocky outcrops and trees in the distance and distance view of the sea. And so often, though, you'll come to somewhere which you've got to stop. I've got to get out here. I've got to look at this. And I even say to people that... Um, if you do it correctly, you can even walk to this place through the fence, which has drawn you 
just go on down the road if you haven't already passed the farmhouse. Ask the farmer if you can climb over his fence at the top there and just go and stand by these rocks. And you can get to do it quite easily. You know, they might look mm. at you, but they'll let you. As long as you don't open the gate and let the uh, sheep out. <laughs> so um, this is the beauty of, of travelling uh, off the track. And also, <clears throat> all around New Zealand, um, besides every small town, there was always a memorial park. And often it was a bushman's or a farmer's or a bushman's park. And it may be just 10, 12 acres of standing trees which have been kept alive without being cut all around as farms. And those are amazing places to go to because here you have ancient trees. And uh, these are well signposted. You can see a little sign might say such and such a park. No history, but you just stop there and wander into this little park. And you suddenly find yourself away from the main road. I can't hear the traffic. And you're in a totally different environment. You know the feeling I'm talking about mm -hmm. too. And um, then you may suddenly realise why at some time or another the farmer fenced this off and kept all his stock out and gifted it to the local council because he realised there was something so special in there he had to protect it, even though he could not, say, put a name to it. But there was something about it and he thought, I've got to keep this. Mm. So little places like that are all over our countryside. You can just stop on the side of the road and... Um, Put out your um, picnic and... Um... There's actually a game. A friend of mine's given it to me. It's quite popular. It's gone quite big overseas. Um, it's called Lost. And you pick a card and it says, turn left. Ooh! <laughs> and then you pick another card. It might say, turn right. <laughs> and, uh, and You actually do this while you're driving? Well, yeah, or cycling. Or well, so cycling and walking. Walking. Um, and so I, I actually read on our That's on our mainstream news that um, there was a family who were playing this game <clears throat> in Australia, <clears throat> and they found an old um, site, like an old shop that had been boarded up or something. Was it a shop or a hotel? Um, and and no one had been there since the I don't know the nineteen seventies or something. And there was all this history, and no one knew it was there. And then it made the news. I can't remember the detail, which isn't, which well, isn't particularly useful. Though. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I love it. What a grand adventure game that is. Yeah. It's a bit like other things are going on. People leave clues all over the place now. Oh, the geocaching. Yeah, the geocaching. I'm intrigued by that. I'd, I'd, I'd go crazy actually trying to find something. You know, I thought, God, where is it? Where can I find it? We were something? actually on a, um, the Humpridge Track, which is a three-day hike um, in Fjordland, on the edge of Fjordland National Park in right. Southland, yeah. and uh, and one of one of the crew we were tramping with knew that there was a geocache at, at uh, one of the big bridges that we were just about to cross, and went and found the geocache and wrote her name did down. Did you find and, it? Yeah, well, she she did. Yeah. Well, how exciting! I was I was too busy eating so it my works. lunch, <laughs> but oh. yeah. <laughs> wow, no. So this is good because these sort of things will take people off the beaten track, take them out of themselves. Give them something different to aim for. So that but, list that you were given of, well, that you well that you made of all those places oh, that yeah. um, mm. that featured in the song of Waitaha. Mm. How many? What percentage do you think that you managed to find? Pro not not all of them at all. Probably um, percentage wise, there may be 
30 or 40. We may have found, um, visited 15 or 20. Okay. And some places, though, the reference was very vague. So you had to try and work out where that little village would have been because this particular valley, uh, this is down at uh, called a, a place called the Rainy River out of um, Nelson. And um, oh, Timaringa, Timaringa, Ringa. Ringa, Ringa, Ringa River, that's right. And, um, but over the years, of course, everything had been farmed around there. Mm. The river changed its course so many times. But that was the first time we went there to that particular place and gave me a clue of what to do. We were with uh, Hamish Miller, the geomancer that we bought out from England, and uh, he doused where the village would have been there. So he picked it up beautifully. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, that's interesting because the river was right below this very steep bank from the road and the village which w would have been on the edge of the river was right across in the middle of a flat paddock so that's because of course the river changed now there would have been nothing for us to see there because everything you know flooding and, and things move yeah mm. yeah there's lots of places like that my gosh you talk about uh and that's an interesting place as well lots of stories about that but it's a place which has to be more deeply understood than most people do because that is still a very, very special place to the, um, mm. the iwi of today. Right. And if um, you're fortunate enough to have an iwi representative or someone from the local iwi can go, but even within the iwi down there, there's a little division of uh, thoughts about what we should do mm. here and there. Um, but it doesn't take away from the energy of the place. I guess I was just lucky. I kind of... Uh, when I went, it you uh, you could I just kind of asked around in town because and then yep. well actually I got I was told what time to arrive in town and to look for someone in a red jumper and then they gave me the good the instructions how to get there and they just let me in but I mean this was back in two thousand I imagine that it's not easy to get <coughs> to no it still is because a lot of people go there oh yeah um, but it's just a courtesy yeah uh, of say telling someone you're there on the land because it is a Maori Trust farm, as you know, mm. and they farm it diligently with uh, lots of uh, cows and sheep and that. And um, but they still maintain, you know, the tracks. And of course, the track you take as you drive up and over the hill down to. And in the winter, that's not as navigable, so mm. it pays to get a bit of local advice. So you leave your car down by the creek by the bridge and walk all the way oh, over right. and back, yeah. I think I went in July. I spent uh, nights out there and um, things like that. And it's an incredibly special place. And so it, it was the site of a temple that was burnt down in it was, 1984. Yeah. Mm. That's yes, yeah, I've seen photographs. It? Mm. It's, it's interesting, the then uh, Ministry of Works, which was a government uh, department, um, the draft people were instructed there to go out and draw the building and photograph it and record it. Oh. which they did a couple of years before it was burned to the ground. There was some young Maori chap, chap which he was Pirao, and he um, just for some reason didn't like it and went and set it on fire and burned it to the ground. I guess he wasn't peed out because pee didn't exist then, but something similar, hey? Oh, well, they say he was Pirao. Uh, he was what, sorry? Pirao. That's mad. Crazy. Pirao. Oh, okay. It's a Maori name, sorry. Oh, yeah. I thought you were talking about, you know, that substance that got really really popular 20 years ago. Pee. No, 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 no. I mean, no come no, back no, from overseas no, no. and going, what's oh, P? Sorry. Uh, Pido. Pido. Oh, okay. It's cool. crazy. Maori for crazy. And um, 
So then, of course, they're going to rebuild it, and they got logs in and put them there ready to go, but nothing ever happened. Yeah. Then they built the, um, the, the house there, the new uh, foddy there. So it's full of interesting history, which we've delved into and found lots of things around the place, which are uh, great pointers to um, what may have gone on there. But that was actually Timuringu Te Kākara was one of four different places like that of schools of learning. This was the topmost one. So all the way down the valley towards Tauramanui, the others were set. Ah. Yeah. So there was a whole string of them in that area. So it was a very, very special place for the ancient people. Hmm. And so in some of the Rainbow News articles that you wrote over the time that you wrote for them, I I remember a few. Um, I remember that there were, there were ones where you had the maps of stones that were emulating um, constellations. Oh, yeah. Were they related to the Song of Waitaha? Um, no, places or completely no, different? they really relate more to uh, Polynesian Maori times put in place and acknowledged or acknowledged um, in the last 700 years. And these are uh, by the Napui people up the far north. And <clears throat> so we brought out a, um, an archaeo astronomer from. Tasmania in Australia, to help us to look at certain things we're trying to find in the north and finding stones and formations that were just sort of so strange and why were they doing this and obviously the people were observing transitions and uh, various things at certain times of the year. And then a dear old Maori lady gave us this particular map which showed all the mountaintops. I was looking at it just recently again. Don't ask me to remember exactly everything. But it represented a um, Taurus, Pallades. It represented the stars in the sky, and they're each named from Pungaru right the way around to um, all the other mountains right down to uh, uh, Manganui Bluff. And um, so it was a star map. But Napui said, well, this, these were just our tribal boundaries. Which oh. might, might be right, yeah. But that's interesting in its own right. That is something which a Maori people today, um, if you ask them about it up there, um, some hapu will claim it. Well, well, it was our hapu, you know, and then someone else will say, "Well, no, it was our hapu who did that," mm. you know. So, mm-hmm. anyhow, and this is what often happens with uh, stories which come out from a deeper history. Uh, they can either get changed or uh, convoluted or um, claimed by other people mm-hmm. for their own purpose. Uh, their own purpose may be that they think they should know and they should talk about and not anyone else. So you can step on lots of toes Mm. if you don't watch it. But no, I was just looking at that only yesterday, actually. I found it on my files here. Oh, craps. Mm. Interesting map, interesting map. I must publish it again sometime. Mm. And the story, I've got, there's a whole story behind it. Is there a collection of your articles at Rainbow News? He walks away. He's going to get a book, I think. He's looking through some books. Ah, The Secret this Land, particular book Journeys into the Mystery. was the second, the second of three, three books. 
And um, this is the one, the book I wrote, I put together and compiled. And it's... Um, oh, nice font. It's a, um, a lot of... Um, it's 10, 10... I forget how many chapters. Let's have a look. Oh, 22 chapters. Based on 22 articles of the 84 I wrote. Oh, great. In the early days, which includes exactly what you're talking about with the map, etc., um, which was just incredible. All the places we visited, which I had all the photographs. All the color um, photographs. It, you know, in the, um, this book's out of print. I'm not going to reprint it. Now, here we are here. Oh. Hmm, perhaps I didn't put the map in there. That's what I did. No. <clears throat> so, um, oh, the map must be somewhere else. So I did a, um, an article here on um, walking with the stars and um, the piece that you're talking about when I put the map in. And so there were all these words, as you can see, there's a lot written there about every location all right. and what the full Maori name was, or the ancient Maori name. And I'm sorry, there's, um, the map is not here in this. And it was quite involved. It goes mm -hmm. on. There's a number of points which made up that particular... I'm pleased that I actually printed it. Um, I'm, I'm sorry that the book's out of print. I'm not going to reprint this one, but it is available as an ebook online. Oh, that's great. Which is a lot cheaper. So it's Journeys into the Mystery uh, Secret Land Book 2. So I guess what we've done is left um, lots of clues for lots of things mm -hmm. um, that we've scattered from our investigations and our writings over a period of time. And Possibly we've um, promoted a lot more interest in, in Waitahara and the deeper history of the country, which is what we really set out to do or try to do, and also got a lot of people on a slightly different road and to explore the wonders of our country. I mean, I often used to say to people when I was um, doing all the summer festivals, not the talking, I say, listen, you know, New Zealand is one of the most sacred landscapes in the world. And I'll qualify this by sort of saying what we've got in the landscape, <clears throat> which is known uh, by Māori and, and the early comers and given a name and given a reason. And I go even go further and I say, look, it's not only the most sacred land in the country, it is also a holy land. Then, of course, there are people who um, look upon New Zealand as having a link to Lemuria, and one of the most interesting links I've heard about was um, that New Zealand was not part of Lemuria, but New Zealand was a place that Lemurians came to for certain rituals, oh. which is interesting. And I've been taken to places out on the west coast, just um, inland from Kafia, which really have a strange Lemurian influence about them, if you like to think about it. The stones there, limestone, which is uh, in strange shapes, like whales and things like that. And so that was interesting to put for that. So then, of course, geologists a couple of years ago um, put out a, a new map of the continent in New Zealand. You may have seen that. And it was suddenly that um, <clears throat> the landmass of New Zealand, we only live on the, the outcrops. The landmass of New Zealand was so big, it was larger than the continent of, England, uh, of India. I thought, wow. And so 
at some stage in the very distant past, you know, the land has been up and down a number of times. It was like a sub-tectonic plate or something, wasn't yeah, it? It was part of the... Kind of, uh, part of the yeah. And New Caledonia was on it. Yeah, New Caledonia on the no, top. Norfolk there. Island. And, yeah, all of yeah. that. Took all those from the Aussies. Norfolk Island and Lord <laughs> Howe Island. <laughs> and, uh, but so there's been lots of things that have gone on within the landscape of New Zealand in very ancient times. There's no fossil record to say, you know, sort of uh, that there were people here or anyone doing anything uh, 250 million years ago. Uh, but there is fossil record to say that there were people here before Maori came, particularly with fossils of the Kuri, which is a Maori... No, sorry. Kure, the rat? The rat. The Maori rat. Kuri is a dog. And... Um, <clears throat> So fossilised uh, rat bones were, were found buried under the, vo uh, the volcanic ash over the last Taupo eruption in 239 um, AD. And um, it just showed that um, how the Maori rat get here. So scientists did a lot of research. Uh, they put forward theories that were floated here on some driftwood. <laughs> it swam here. Rats don't swim. They're not good swimmers. And... Um, so only people could have bought the rat here and dropped it off or got off the boat and hopped off when it was here. Well, there were so, all sorts of... Um, I'm, I probably I can't source where I got the information, but I suspect it was your words in Rainbow News, wasn't there, the, um, the cave drawings in the Mackenzie country? Oh, gosh, yeah. Well, the cave drawings all down the South Island. And they were, they were said uh, to be Taiwanese. Uh, there was a, an, perhaps an influence. Yeah. yeah. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But some of them, uh, they just, uh, be, Ray and I have been down and looked at some of those. And um, Naitahu have, you know, sort of claimed um, ownership of all those. And they are protecting them, thank goodness, um, because right. they were just disappearing, you know, sort of. Um, but no, there's so much in our landscape. And so for a serious uh, investigator, there's a lot to see and a lot to do. A you know, lot of adventures to questions. be had. Yes. You know, and the fact that we've had an adventure or two over 30-odd years uh, doesn't mean to say that the, the adventures are all being had. You know, there's more to be had. I mean, mm. crops, we've done helicopter trips 6,000 foot up into the um, Southern Alps to land at an ancient and spend a day at an ancient greenstone site way up in the mountains. Amazing. With Barry Brailsford and... Um, not a couple of people, and um, to actually go and see these places and just get the feeling. It's the feeling. That's right, it is, mm. because the people that were there. Okay, so you know a little bit about psychometry, how psychometry works, how a person can go into a place, uh, for instance, um, out in the garden here, pick up a rock in the garden and sort of say, wow, there's a message here, and this is the message. Mm. So I used to work with um, two good psychometrists and also a good dowser. Uh, he could uh, map dows from great distances away. And he or these two men were great helps to us in finding places. I'd get in touch with Gordon and sort of say, well, we're down the South Island and we're trying to find this um, uh, ancient Mudai site, which is called so-and-so, but it's just getting a bit hard to find. Could you have a look? So he'd dows away on his map up there in Dargaville. Send us down an email sort of saying, try there. And also psychometry with old uh, Dr. Bill, a GP down in the Mochueka. Um, gosh, he was a mystical man. 
and we'd go on to an ancient site and he'd just pick up stones and sort of, wow, ooh, there's been some bitterness here, there's been bloodshed here, there's been battles fought, or there's been great happiness here. And he could actually mm. read what was going on with the people that were living there three, four hundred, five hundred thousand years ago. Which um, <clears throat> I've also worked with people who do remote viewing. And when we were doing our documentary a few years ago on the Patapairehi, trying to find the people of the forest, uh, I got in touch with a, a remote viewer in Auckland. I said, listen, I said, can you just um, have a look in the Waipua forest and try and um, <clears throat> see if you can pinpoint a place up there which we should really have a look at. Now, the Waipua forest, we drive through it going up north, and etc., etc., drive through all these beautiful big carrot trees and look down the bank. That's just part of the forest. It's like this. Rivers and, and valleys, and it's wow. so steep and full of massive trees. The, um, and so he came up with a site. Uh, it was unattainable for us. Uh, we couldn't do anything about getting in there because we were suddenly banned from filming up there. The local Maori didn't like us filming. And mm -hmm. it wasn't their forest, but they were the caretakers. So uh, it's the same with um, Puriora Forest, just down the road from, Puri, uh, from Timaringa Tikakala. We'd been going there for a number of years and had great experiences with the Patapaihi uh, in the forest there. And um, we got permission from a Kauatua to and film. near Tikwiti? Kind of no, 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 no. It's back no, towards it's Benidale. Benidale. Not far from Timaringa to Kakara, just down the road. Oh, I was just trying to give context for if someone was to look on a map and didn't oh, know the sorry. area. <laughs> it's near Puriora Forest, right in the dead centre of New Zealand, actually. Yeah, north uh, of Lake Taupo is probably yeah, north of Lake Taupo. Describing yes, it that's right. Yes, yeah, that's right. And um, <clears throat> so um, we had to film there sort of in a clandestine way. Uh, one Kamata gave us permission. And the other senior Kamata had his nose, I think, put out a joint, so he would not give us permission. But we had everything set up, so we went, be damned. And we did the same with uh, Waipua Forest. Uh, the reason they tried to you know, sort of keep us out was more political than anything else, mm -hmm. nothing to do with the Patapaida. No. So we did, went ahead and filmed and uh, got good footage. Have you seen the documentary? No, I haven't, but I just I'll, saw I'll it give you a copy to take home and yeah. have a look at sometime. Okay. Yeah, I mean, Puriora Forest Park's probably more famous for its um, cycling these days, the Timber Trail. <laughs> that's exactly right. I mean, that's quite an incredible feature. It takes a lot of people down there. Mm. But the area we go to is um, back across the main road, and it's uh, a part of Puriora, but it's separated by the, main, by, by the Western Highway running through there. And uh, we've had lots of events down there over the years where people looking spiritually at things would come together for a weekend and have mm. a weekend and chanting and dancing and um, eating lots of good food and telling big stories and yarns and so um, that's where of course when you go to places like this you have experiences which leave you sort of wondering the first experience I had down there with the Patapaidehi this was a particular weekend there was probably about um, 25 people in for the weekend and the first night Friday night Went to bed fairly late. Uh, there were two young children there with their parents, but everyone else were adults. So the children and their parents were uh, in a, a shared bunk room. There was quite a few adults in there. And I fortunately ended up with a room on my own, which is nice. I can't put up with other people snoring. <laughs> and um, so I just climbed in my sleeping bag and sat me down on my bunk. And there was a window right above me. 
and suddenly on the window, tap, 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 and laughter. And I was like, shivers. So I swung the legs around, you know, it's like when your sleeping bag all zipped up, stumbled up to the window, pulled the curtains back, they had ordinary curtains, under the catch, threw the window open, looked outside, and nothing. I thought, oh, gosh, if those kids are out, what the heck are they doing? Why'd they pick on me? So uh, I closed the window, drew the blinds, sitting on the bed, just putting the, the feet back in the sleeping bag, tap, tap, tap on the window, laugh, 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 laugh. So, and of course, this window was on the back of a long back of the building, long wall, nowhere to hide, no trees, nowhere to go. So I was up quickly, threw the window open, looked out, no one on sight. I thought, ah, oh, those kids must be quick. Okay, I'll catch them out. So I jumped up, grabbed my torch, and went down the passageway to where they were with their parents. Sneaked in, everyone fast asleep. They must have wondered what I was doing if they'd woken up. Flashed the torch off. There's the two kids. Out to it and dead sleep. So that was my first incredible mm. experience of Puriora Forest. And that's what prompted us to go back there to film to see if we could capture the Patavairehi. So you've got the documentary on the Patu Paira here, but you have also been involved in, in others. Wasn't there, there was one a few years ago that um, was about people, and there was a lady with red hair from Rotorua. Oh, yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah. That's one Australian, a seri- uh, three-part series by an Australian documentary maker. Yeah, all of that. <clears throat> you get um, involved with bits and pieces. But this was our own documentary we yes. made, Voices of the Forest. Mm. And, uh, Fascinating. We had a just a, a lovely sort of um, crew. There was the, the cameraman, our, our um, producer, and our director and myself. And the four of us were gallivanting all over the place. We put the whole thing together, I think, in two weeks. And it was just magnificent. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. yeah. And when, were, when was that? that you were oh, that's about 12 years ago now. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm mentally mapping it into... Um, into the astrological transits that oh. we talk about in uh, in in um, in this po- podcast, um, because we, we talked before we started recording, and I said, "Oh, what what were you doing? You know, half half your life ago when you're in your early forties? Um, yeah, were, were there big changes? And you said that um, just before that time, you had a, an interesting experience when you were in your thirties, mid thirties, with um, on the near death experience. Yeah. Oh, that was life-changing. I didn't realise, I, I knew that <clears throat> bee, bee stings affected me, but I didn't realise how badly. And um, Ray and I had a, uh, in those days, we had a small uh, country store at the back of Huntley in the uh, Waikato. And it came Friday night, and we're just standing outside there, we closed the shop down, just chatting to a couple of guys out the front there. Ray was inside closing up the shop. And a bee fell off the rafter, fell onto my neck, and immediately stung me. And Ooh, suddenly I started to I said, shoot. So there was a, a, a local doctor who lived at another village further up the road. Couldn't get hold of her. She was out, not available. So suddenly Raymond just said, you've got to get him to the doctor. Because I was, I was fading. I was starting to lose consciousness. So these guys, I remember them trying to bundle me in the back of a two-seater Volkswagen. <laughs> and uh, then I was, I, was, I was gone out to it. And um, they had to take me through to Huntley. And it was um, probably a 12, 
yeah, a good 12, 13 minute run. And so on the way through, I carked it, uh, evacuated my bowels and everything, you know, so the body had just given up. And next thing I remember, I was um, traveling along, walking, moving gently down this great big tunnel with all the colors around. There was music, but I don't remember much about the music. But I was more interested in the fact that I was going down this tunnel, which just curved away to the uh, to my right, and um, there was someone with me, alongside me, like a guide. I wasn't aware who or what, but I was just aware of someone there, and I was going, and I thought, wow, I was just overwhelmed. And then the next thing, a voice came through, and said, "I think we've got him. I think we can save him." That was a doctor in his uh, surgery at the back of his uh, business in, um, in Huntley. And he'd, uh, they got me in on the table and he had actually had uh, a death from a bee sting the, the week before, as it turned out. And so suddenly, <gasps> and so he did all sorts of things like injecting me straight in the heart with adrenaline and all that sort of thing. And next thing, uh, I could hear this voice saying, I think we've got him. I think he's going to come back. And I was saying, no, 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 let me go. I don't want to come back. Which is interesting because I wasn't even thinking of my wife and my family and my children and, or anything. So that was a very, very meaningful mm. uh, experience. And when I came to, I was sick for weeks after. I was almost bedridden. And I felt, if you could liken taking a beautiful silk scarf and dragging it over a thorn bush and tearing it. I felt my fabric had been torn. I was just torn to pieces inside. And I wasn't expressing any disappointment that I can remember that I'd come back because I didn't know where I'd been. Because in those days, this was back in the early 70s, I'd never heard of a near-death experience. It wasn't even a term which was around. Hmm. They occurred, obviously, to people. So that was a big turning point. <clears throat> and then... Three years after that, we um, discovered a uh, particular path uh, which we became initiated in and have followed for the last 48 years. And uh, That would have been your astrological midlife. Hmm. There you are. You beginning. <laughs> yeah, beginning. No, that's right. Yeah. And so that was so important. Mm. Yeah. Mm. yeah. So I never looked back since. Yeah. Yeah, well, you certainly had quite some adventures. Oh, I didn't tell you about this one, did I? No, no, the one where... That was when I was 16 and a half. Oh, right. So if you can't see, but he's holding his hand. Got, yeah, and, fingers and missing. I had to actually stop and count. Hang on, that's a finger. No, hang on, there's two. There's one and a half fingers missing. Yeah, that's right. And a hand, which is... Uh, and one eye gone. Oh, it's, really? Yes. Yeah, so when I was 16 and a half, I uh, was doing a lot of experimenting <clears throat> as a... Uh, uh, looking at um, being a physicist in, in my future life as a 16-year-old. I wondered, you know, experimenting as a teenager has a lot of different definitions according to different oh, you're quite right too. <laughs> generations. And so um, we had the uh, opportunity to uh, purloin live um, ammunition from a creek bed uh, in a creek in uh, Papakura, which was on the site of an old American army camp. This was oh. back in the 50s. And so when the Americans left, they were always a bit untidy. Uh, all the buildings went. But they threw strings of ammunition and hand grenades in the creek. 
for people to find and trip over. So we found that we could get these big anti-aircraft shells and take the top off them and tip out the cordite, which is a explosive stuff, it has to be ignited by a percussion. And um, we can make little fissures and fireworks out of them. Not to blow anything up, but just to play. So I was mixing uh, up a batch of this, or had it in a jar, and the bloody thing exploded in my hand. So that was a biggie, actually. So I spent um, next three months after that in, in two different hospitals in Auckland, being stitched back together and put back together as best as they could. Oh, I bet your mother was oh, worried and exasperated mom, both. She's my stepmom. She was Step such a lovely lady. Mm -hmm. And there was just having her second son to my father and she was just due two weeks after I did this oh. and I remember as they loaded me into there we had to walk out from this farm to a house we struck there were two of us together we struck a, um, a little group of boy scouts out on, on a weekend camp on a, this was on a Saturday morning and we had to put a, a tourniquet on me and I, I was a mess so I was just blood from head to foot I was shrapnel everywhere and um and so they put a tourniquet on and they accompanied us to the nearest farmhouse to get a phone. No one home. So one of them did the Boy Scout thing, smashed the window, went inside, <laughs> rung the ambulance. And the ambulance came out to pick me up, of course. And I remember saying to them, for goodness sake, when you tell my parents my mother is due to have a baby within the next 10 days, please, you know, watch how you handle it. That's all I said. I remember saying that, you know. So she did have the baby about 10 days later and I went to see her in the, in the home. But um, these are major turning points and I often say to people, sometimes it is a traumatic experience. It may be at the right time according to things astrologically. And I think that sometimes things may occur outside those parameters, which um, there could be something which could have happened astrologically, which didn't, but you moved it and it happened over here. So I don't know. Uh, whatever's in your destiny, it, it's going to occur. So that was life-changing mm. as a 16-year-old. Missed out on all my school and all my exams and all that sort of stuff, you know. So, uh, <clears throat> but then I went on into the workaday world after that. Someone, um, my father arranged a job for me. He was, um, had a, knew a few people around and um, it was Hannah's Shoe Store. And they said, uh, we'll employ him in Hannah's Shoe Store in Odahu. So I used to go on the bus every day. As an apprentice, gosh, what a thing to do. And in those days, you had to learn from the bottom up. Did you, were you making the shoes? No, no, no. Selling shoes. Just selling, I was a yeah, shoe okay. salesman. Yeah. yeah, I did. No, you had to learn, you know, you had to wash the windows and scrub the, you know, the okay. tiles out the front and all that sort of thing. Mm. And so that gave me confidence. And the manager there said, you know, when you came for the interview and I looked at you, I got in touch with the heads in Wellington. And I said, you know, you've got these physical disabilities, which included one eye missing. And those, because I got an artificial eye after that, which used to move around the place. It was quite handy, actually. And um, the uh, and he said, you got in touch with the head office in Wellington. And they said, listen, we don't care if he's got a big wart on his nose as long as he can sell shoes. So it took me And that gave me confidence. Way around. I never looked back. And so fast forward to today, when... You're in your Neptune return, which is when the kind of very spiritual planet of Neptune comes back to where it was when you were born. So I don't know if right wow. now it's quite spiritual for you. Um, that's interesting. That's what's happening. And soon Pluto will come back to where it was when you were born, which is 
um, quite unique to your generation. It won't happen to my generation because we, so we won't live till 120. Pluto's got a elliptical orbit. Well, isn't it interesting what you what you're born into, which you're not aware of. I was oh, not, not aware absolutely. of Absolutely. We're born into different generations. You can mm. do it by mm. where, where Pluto was and Leo when you were born or Libra when I was born. Um, but in recent years, um, you've got a completely different passion, but still nature related. Oh, no, it was. Yeah. Yeah. So and that, that came about by um, <clears throat> going out and uh, investigating these ancient sites throughout New Zealand. And I did what you call all the archaeological work. As I mentioned in the, in the documentary, I did the measurements and took the photographs and pontificated. But so often I was out by myself, miles away from anywhere, on the edge of a forest or what have you. And I'd become aware that I was being observed. You get that feeling. You've probably had that feeling sometimes. You've gone somewhere and think, oh, someone's out there. And so this used to happen quite often. Got to a stage where I whipped around quickly to see who was looking at, at me from behind a tree, but no, no one there. So that Just made the me realise right? that, um, <laughs> yeah, there, there's more uh, out there. I went through a stage thinking that this may have been Maori guardians, various sites, and uh, I remember when Raymond and I, I forget what year it was now, back in the nineties, sometime. We uh, went across the ancient greenstone trails. We did a six-day cl six climb over the mountains with other people, carrying Poanamu from the coast across to Castle Hill with Waitaha people. I think I may have read about it at some stage. Yeah. And um, that Raven and I uh, were helicoptered ahead of the main group uh, we, we missed going down the steep side of the mountain, which was good. And uh, we had to get the campsite ready, which was an old um, trapper's hut, and uh, get water in, and um, from the river, from the Wilberforce River, and timber. Not much to do. Helicopter dropped us off there. He didn't even know where he was going. He said, hold on. He said, I'll just go and have a look inside the hut and see what name's on it. And he went in. It was a right hut, you know. So um, we went in. <clears throat> now, we got everything done. And it was quite, it was before lunch. And we knew the others would be a long time away because they were coming right up over the um, over the pass at the top and down through uh, all the scree. And we went and sat down on the banks of, of this river. And you know what the glacial rivers are like in the South Island, the beautiful bluey green. Towering mountains up there. And while we are there, a little Cessna aeroplane flew way up. You could hardly see it. It was like a... A bird and went up there and round there and disappeared. And oh, civilization. And so Ray and I just were meditating on the side of the river there. And I mentioned this actually in our documentary. And suddenly I heard the sound of singing and chanting. And of course, I, I lost the moment by sort of coming to turn around to look at Raywan. And she was looking at me and she said, Did you hear that? I said, Yeah. So we both heard singing and chanting. We thought, Wow. Wow, it just must be our um, group uh, coming down behind us because we did trail songs to help to get us into a rhythm. You know, Barry Brailsford was leading us, so he's a pretty hard taskmaster. And um, they didn't arrive for another five hours. And I said to them, I arrived, I said, Wow, were you doing trail songs today? He said, No, he said, We were going so fast because we had to double march today to get to the site where you were and uh, do double the. Uh, the, the time mm. 
and we weren't singing. So Raymond and I put this down to being guardians because we were actually sitting on the ancient Greenstone Trail. Across the river was the Trail of the Warriors. And so the, these two trails went side by side right across the mountains. The warriors, when they were going to war, would use that when they're coming back from war. And those carrying the Greenstone would only walk on this trail. And uh, I thought, well, the guardians. But then I sort of reassessed this after many years, and I thought, really, I think it was the Patabadehi. Mm -hmm. mm. The words, there's no words that um, I, I could say of the song. I can't remember what the melody was like. It was quite fleeting, because once you open your eyes, you lose it. And, mm. you know, I should have just kept my eyes closed and waited for a while. Mm. So we've had lots of experiences like that when we've been out with voices and singing and people chattering and walking past and you can't see them as they walk past. Wow. This, yeah. is, this has happened with groups of five or six of us sitting there at Potu Point on the top of the Kaipla Harbour investigating an ancient White House site there. And uh, we'd been looking around trying to find um, various things which indicated that they were there. We'd found uh, their water supply and we were sitting on the edge of this little pond which was uh, spring-fed just having a drink of water and a, a muesli bar and uh, miles away from anyone and anywhere. And suddenly we heard voices round, just round the corner there. There was a bit of a hill there. And so round that side, coming from the way we'd just come, we heard voices. We looked at each other and said, oh, Christ, there's someone else here. I said, oh, yeah. And so the voices got louder and louder. And so all of us all stood up to have a, a Jack Nohi, which is to have a look around the corner. And um, there it is, open, because this is quite open, um, coastal tea tree and things like that. Nothing, no much overgrass, uh, uh, undergrowth rather, uh, in this area, and things were just um, quite open. And the voices went past, chatting away, we couldn't hear what they're saying, right in front of the six of us, and disappeared up that way. Interesting. So we thought, being open-minded, Perhaps there may be something in that direction that we should go and look at. Uh -huh. So we did, and we found something which was quite bewildering, still is bewildering, but that's a story for another day. Another time. Well, perhaps you could give me a, a little synopsis of what you're doing a lot of these days with plants. Oh, heavens above. I've got time for that. Well, probably not a lot of time. Okay, plants. Yep, we've got the... We've got the... Plant music, right. Um, 12 years ago and I fell over here on the land and broke my leg. <clears throat> I was sitting here, with, you know, sort of in a chair like you do. And what I'm going to do, and then suddenly I read about a device which you could uh, purchase from a group in uh, Italy and allowed you to put a couple of electrodes on the plant around the roots and record the plant playing music. And I thought, wow, I've got to look at this. Suddenly I was intrigued. I did have something with plants because we live in this incredible forest here as you can see and um, I thought I've got to get one of those so I bought one of these sat in the lounge there with Sabella my peace lily it's the only thing I had access to and started experimenting so one thing led to another and now we have uh, more sophisticated equipment which is more refined more sophisticated and easier to carry and so virtually what we're doing as scientists have found that um, looking more deeply at plants, what makes them work, how they work, and the fact that 
the plant lily, which I'm pointing to on the table here, like any other living plant or tree on the planet, is doing its thing. First of all, it's bringing in light, sunlight, if it's a plant out in the sun, and it's bringing in the carbons out of the atmosphere. It's taking them down through all the stems and leaves and down to the roots. It's converting the uh, carbon into plant sugar, and then the plant itself is expiring uh, moisture and putting oxygen back out. Now, all these things which occur within the leaf, uh, leaves and the branches and the trunk is creating uh, it's it's movement. It's like a circ it's like the circulation of a human or a, right. So it's movement. It's, so it's movement aside, and it's creating frequency. static no static electricity. Electricity, not frequencies. There may be frequencies involved. Well, but, and a little gadget that translates it to music. So we pick up the static electricity, oh. and we translate that into musical notes. So what does that sound like? Would you like to hear it? Yes, please. Hmm. All right, we'll do that. I hope you don't, won't be alarmed. This is just one of the tunes that Sabella plays. How many tunes are there? Well, rough. As many as I like. I Because the electricity I, is different I choose, each time. I choose or, instruments. Or the app I on choose your phone chords, that's hooked up to the, the gadget. The app, app on the phone, yeah. Gives options. I can choose yeah, all the options. And so I can convert or channel hers into um, different hertz, uh, different notes, musical notes, and even a range of instruments. And you've done this. I mean, Sabella's clearly your favourite because I, I do see you post with Sabella well, music because she's very accessible sitting here on the kitchen table. Yeah, but... <clears throat> We just play all the time. And I remember the first time I took Sabella out for a demonstration after my leg was healed. I went to the Charter Centre in Tuaka in South mm. Auckland. There was a, a, a duo on there and they wanted me to come. So I managed to get through there, took Sabella, put her behind me and I gave a talk for an hour and a half about plants and, and what's going on in the plant world, the scientists and plant memories and plants plants are just so wonderful anyhow she was playing in the background while i spoke the whole time and a nice attentive audience there and when i finished um, i just turned the volume up a little and said thank you very much and then the lady leading it or leading everything there said uh, we'll do a waiata now for you so they all stood and did uh, te aroha mm -hmm. sung through <clears throat> which is beautiful and sabella was still playing the same tune in the background and then the lady said we'll do the uh last chorus in, in english uh, which everyone seemed to know and um as soon as she said that sabella stopped playing and uh, she played for an hour and a half i immediately well they were still singing up there immediately turned and had a look and the power's still on plug's still in the lights are still flashing i thought oh well i don't know what's happened here they finished singing and they were just standing, standing there, just breathing out. She burst back into life with the most amazing fanfare. I've never heard it since. She went something like this. Do, 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 do. With three notes like that, everyone around, including myself, were flabbergasted. They still talk about it at Charter Centre. It's a fact. They were just amazed. So was I. And I thought, who are we to really underestimate 
what plants see and feel and hear. And that's right. I mean, some scientists now are saying that um, in 15 to 20 years time, we're going to have to recognize see trees as sentient beings. That's where the research is going. So I'm just looking at this all the time, keeping up with the research. Thank you so, so there much. We are. Thank you for playing Sabella, telling us stories of your life. Well, probably we'd need another few days to get through the whole Exactly, life. exactly. Yeah. Well, I'll keep but that I in think mind for another time. No, I, I, I don't. I, some things I've got to forget. But some of your stuff is available. Like you, Some of your books are still available. Books are still... Uh, I've got um, two books available here on my website, which is secretland.co.nz. And I've also got two books up on uh, Kindle and uh, Amazon, uh, which you can download fully illustrated with colour pictures. Mm. e-books yeah and uh but no music i haven't put any music out much at all but i'm getting ready to do that but you can hear what sabella or what i mean i've got recordings of um rimu trees and kauri trees in the forest here every song's different no two are the same and so it, it's like i've got a, a job of many lifetimes to complete well clearly that bee wasn't going to take you out back then mm. Well, that bee opened up a lot for me. Mm. It did. Well, thanks, Gary. Thank you for being so patient and sitting there with all your wonderful apparatus. And <laughs> it, um, it didn't deter me at all. I, I could just look at you smiling away there. And sometimes I'll just say something to get an acknowledgement and you'd nod back and smile. So that's good. I love I love your stories. and in the Thank you, my love. Look, thank you for... Um, you do honour me by uh, recording this and... Uh, Hopefully you've got something you can share. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you look enthusiastic enough. Yeah, I'm inspired. And okay. here we can keep going, unravelling life. 